with all this stuff, SPACs, IPOs, GameStop, you know, going up, whatever, I, you know, I'm, I've lost track, 4,000%, whatever it is. Check out what happened to the high-flying names like GameStop, AMC, Cost, Express, and BlackBerry. They all came crashing down today. Look at what we're calling short-squeeze stocks. They're going straight up especially GameStop, now up 75%. David versus Goliath showdown on Wall Street and the wild ride for GameStop as amateur investors take on hedge fund billionaires, prompting uproar and investigation. A historic day today, no doubt. This is gigantic. Welcome, everybody. Crushing it tonight. Cheers. I'm Ryan Ortega, and from Quinn Palms Productions, this is Short Squeeze, the story of how Wall Street bets went up against a hedge fund and sent GameStop to the moon. GameStop was ripping higher on the heels of Chamath Palihapitiya's call-buying and Elon Musk's tweet. Other stocks started ripping, including AMC, the struggling movie theater chain. Things got so out of hand that Robinhood announced restrictions on buying shares in GameStop and AMC shares. Then, Melvin Capital said they were closing their positions. And Andrew Left made an announcement on YouTube, saying Citron Capital closed out its short. Hi, this is Andrew Left at Citron Research. Around six days ago, I did a video explaining five reasons why I thought GameStop would go from 40 all the way back to 20. And I had no idea why that, what that would set off. So the reason I'm doing this video is because I cannot answer one more phone call. How are you? Are you okay? Are you in business? What about GameStop? Should I short it here? People I have not spoken to in 20, 30 years. This has captured the attention of the America and every trader and non-trader alike. Then, as what some described as a bailout, Citadel and Point72 invested $2.75 billion into Melvin Capital Management. Both funds already had more than a billion dollars invested in Melvin as of 2019. When this happened, the story started to mutate even further. Citadel is a diversified financial firm based in Chicago. They, too, run a hedge fund business, investing in stocks and other assets but they also run a separate unit called Citadel Securities. On their website, they describe themselves as a leading global market maker. So what exactly is a market maker? We'll get into it more later, but it basically matches up buyers and sellers of stocks. So the fund shorting GameStop, Melvin Capital, was bailed out in part by Citadel. And Citadel receives order flow from apps like Robinhood, all this was happening just as Robinhood restricted buying shares in GameStop. Soon, the narrative shifted again. Retail investors were not big participants in GameStop. Here's Leslie Picker from CNBC. Tyler, that whole narrative of the little guys taking on the big guys, well, it got a little muddied this week. Retail traders, as Kate was mentioning earlier, they were actually uh, not big participants in GameStop. They were net sellers last Tuesday through Thursday as well, according to Citadel Securities. So who was the one buying? That's the big question right now. Well, much of that activity was driven by hedge funds covering their shorts and other hedge funds riding the momentum higher and subsequently lower. Melvin founder Gabe Plotkin was a top portfolio manager at Point72's predecessor firm, 
SAC Capital Management before he left to start Melvin. Melvin has returned an average of 30% a year since its founding in 2014. But it had been hard hit by a series of short bets, starting the year with $12.5 billion in assets and losing almost 30% through that Friday. Mr. Plotkin said in a statement, I am incredibly proud to partner with Ken Griffin and Steve Cohen. The team at Melvin is eager to get to work and reward the confidence of these two great investment icons. Point72 founder Mr. Cohen said in a statement that his former employee is an exceptional investor and leader. We are pleased to have the opportunity to invest additional capital. Citadel founder Mr. Griffin said, We have great confidence in Gabe and his team. Mr. Plotkin also garnered attention for his buy of a stake in the NBA basketball team, the Charlotte Hornets, and Mr. Cohen for the New York Mets. But Griffin has shown a penchant for real estate more than a pro sports franchise. On that day, Jay Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, was giving a press conference and was asked about it. Uh, I don't want to comment on a particular uh, company or or day's market activity or uh, things like that. It's just not uh, really something that I would uh, typically comment on. Restrictions on certain stocks certainly hit a chord with Wall Street bets. It was then when the narrative shifted to the little person being cut out. But as we'll soon learn, market structure is complicated. It's not because we wanted to stop people from buying these stocks, Robinhood wrote in a blog post, We did this because the required amount we had to deposit with the clearinghouse was so large. And the statement goes on. Basically, they were saying regulators made them stop trading until they could raise more capital. Citadel accounts for greater than 50% of Robinhood's revenue in 2020. And Janet Yellen, the newly confirmed Treasury Secretary and former chairwoman of the Fed, has made at least $7 million from speaking fees, with 810000 coming from three speeches given to Citadel. That day, shares reached an intraday peak of $483, before plunging down to nearly $112 by the time markets closed. The SEC issued a statement saying it was closely monitoring and devaluating the extreme price volatility of certain stocks' trading prices over the past several days. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about the controversy at a press briefing. Um, Is the White House concerned about the stock market activity we're seeing around GameStop? Well, um, I'm also happy to repeat that we have the first female Treasury Secretary and a team that's surrounding her and often questions about market we'll send to them. But our team is, of course, our economic team, including Secretary Yellen and others, are monitoring uh, the situation. Robinhood and other brokerages restricting trading in GameStop stock set off a backlash on social media. At the time, Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev took to media outlets, claiming there was no liquidity problem. He even went on a Clubhouse interview with Elon Musk to talk about it after much confusion. The root of the issue here is that market structure is extremely complex and requires not just a technical understanding, but more than just a few minutes of airtime to discuss. Here's Tenev on CNN. Well, I know that there's rumors around that, um, you know, we were directed by market makers or other market participants to do this. And I want to be 100 percent clear This decision was not made on the direction of any market maker or uh, other market participants. Robinhood, uh, as a brokerage, has lots of financial requirements 
SEC requirements. We have to put up money at clearing houses. The amount of money that we have to put up depends on market volatility. And we're in historic, uh, we're in a historic situation. Tenev also did a webinar with Stanford University to talk about the situation. If we look at the financial system that we have to operate in, it's a complicated system, right? And I don't think as an industry, we've done a great job explaining it. And it really affects people's lives. And, you know, we've been having a lot of memes on the internet around T plus two settlement. Um, you know, you see T plus two judgment day and, and all of those things where people are really getting into understanding the underbelly of the financial system and asking really powerful questions about, you know, if you can buy a TV and get it delivered uh, in same day, why why is a purely electronic transaction take two days to deliver the shares? And he went on with Portnoy, too. The YouTube stream got nearly 350,000 views. So Vlad is in the waiting room. I can't believe it's happening. I think it's gonna he's going to try to be cutesy. I'm going to try to get the real answers. We'll see how it goes. Bring him in. Vlad with the Lakers. What does that say? Lakers hat? It says it says Taco Tuesday. Taco uh, Tuesday. Actually. Okay, Vlad. You know everybody here is watching this hates your guts, right? <laughs> That's what I hear. Um, but look, uh, I'm glad to be on your show. And uh, hopefully we can get into it and, and answer a lot of these questions. Okay. So I, let, let's start with the number one issue question in flip-flop that I think everybody started with. Some of the usual commentators in this story started to take to the airwaves, too, to voice their concerns. Here's Dave Portnoy on CNN and Shamath Palihapitiya again. Dave Portnoy, the founder of Barstool Sports, to say he's been vocal opponent of Robin Hood's actions is an understatement, but we like those. Dave, great to have you back with us. What angered you most about what happened yesterday? Well, I mean, they, they basically, the name of the company is Robin Hood, steal from the rich, give to the poor, and they did the exact opposite. They stole from the poor and gave back to the rich. I uh, unequivocally don't believe what he just said. Vlad, I think he's lying about that. Uh, there's just no rational explanation on why they would do what they did without outside pressure, interference. I think that what you're seeing is um, essentially a pushback against the establishment in a really important way. You have a lot of people, and I would encourage anybody who is dismissive of this thing to go into Wall Street Bets and actually just read the forums. And I think that you're going to see three kinds of posts. An interesting angle to explore here is the public relations side of the story. Aubrey Strobel is a PR pro who currently works in the financial tax space. With GameStop, obviously, opening any new positions was not allowed. You know, they could, they, people could sell their positions. But um, I think coming right off the bat of, you know, AMC, GME, um, all these meme stocks really just, you know, mooning, I guess. Um, it was, it was crazy to see the, the comms plan on the Robin Hood end because you had to get Vlad out there and explain this, why the company did this. And what you really want to do in these situations is you want your CEO to do an in-studio interview. You need to have them get makeup done. And I know there's like some psychology behind it. it sounds weird, but you know, you look at the presidential election, I think it was Nixon versus Kennedy. Who was it that didn't, Nixon didn't wear makeup. And, and it was 
there was actually like a psychology behind it that, you know, people are more likable. Um, and then you should be in studio. Uh, Vlad really didn't have any compassion for the uh, retail traders that got, you know, hurt by this. And there was no empathy, no real like ownership um, and not a lot of transparency. And really in these situations, you need to be transparent about what went wrong, even if it is like the most negative, you know, if even if it is like bad on your end, the public wants transparency and you kind of have to give it to them. And I just don't think the comms team at Robinhood, and I'm not trying to dig at them at all because, you know, I comms is a very high stress job. You need to get a statement out there immediately. You need to explain your coordinating with like tons of people you're um, coordinating with your investors um, and your platform. So it is high stakes, it's high stress, but I felt like the way they handled it was poor. Vlad looked like he lived in a vampire lair when he was on the CNBC interview and everyone was like, what is going on? So um, it, it was a little bit presence. It was a little bit messaging and there was a lack of transparency um, in the statement that was put out. And so uh, yeah, that made him like enemy target number one by the internet. It only made it worse. I thought it was interesting that later on they put Vlad on Clubhouse. Elon Musk gives gives you know this has been the most bizarre com strategy. You got you got Elon Musk giving him time on Clubhouse to talk about it, and I I stayed up for that Clubhouse room, and it was just um, basically the same thing as the CNBC interview. Like we, the, the community and the world wants people to redeem themselves. They want to give people a second chance, but it seemed like he just kind of skirted around the issue and like, wouldn't really take ownership. The, what you got to do in those situations is like, I screwed up. Yes. Robin hood screwed up. We are sorry for what we did. And even if it's a logistical thing, um, you, you just got to take full ownership of it and just take the fall, fall on the sword and then move on. But he hasn't seemed to be able to do that. And then he goes on, he goes on with um, uh, Dave Portnoy on Barstool Sports. Like they literally threw this together. I don't know how a comms team approved that appearance or if Vlad is just doing whatever he wants to sort of save his reputation. Um, because I, I don't know how quickly you can get that approved, especially with going on, you know, a show like against, Dave, you know, that's like going on Tucker Carlson and getting ripped. Um, it, that's such a dangerous thing to do because you you don't really know what is up, you know, the host sleeve. And it feels like I think Dave went pretty easy on him. But, um, I, you know, he comes on with a hat <laughs> and to be more likable and like be more presentable. And um, yeah, I don't I don't know if it necessarily worked. I think people sort of made fun of it. It looks like he never wore a hat before. And I'm not trying to rip Vlad, but it's like, OK, well, what are we doing here? So, I mean, the whole thing from beginning to end has felt like a bit of a circus. And it feels like uh, Vlad's been running comms and just doing whatever he wants. And yeah, I feel I pray for that team daily, <laughs> the comms team over there. So this is the thing about comms. You can tell, you know, the spokespeople, the CEOs of the company what to do and advise them and say, don't do this, don't do this. But sometimes you get a CEO that says, you know, I'm prepped. I don't need any prep for it. Um, I'm going to go on and do it. And I mean, if, they're, if they have, you know, they own the company, um, they can basically do whatever they want. Um, there's no, like, way to stop that. And so... As the comms person, your only thing to do is just prepare for backlash, 
which is like a 24 hour monitoring system. But if we look at the other side of it, um, PR people always tell you any press is good press. And while Robinhood has gotten, you know, dragged through the rocks and all kinds of stuff has happened to them, their name's been like tarnished in many ways. They've had so much free advertisement. Um, and you can only imagine that people who are just hearing the name and getting more brand recognition for the company, just they just are more aware of Robinhood now because of this whole debacle. So weirdly, um, they probably are benefiting on some end. Um, I'm sure there's data to back that up if you looked up like how many signups they got um, over that time period. But yeah, um, CEOs can run amok and that is the hard part about doing comps. <laughs> On background and off the record are two things that people don't really know and they're not legally binding. So even if a, it's basically like a handshake, a verbal handshake that can be broken, there's really nothing you can do if a reporter takes something and runs with it. So you sort of have to have some rapport and develop a relationship with that reporter if you're going to go tell them something that is, you know, secretive and sort of, you know, usually in these situations, if we're being frank, you know, if you help a reporter out on scoops with information, tips, things like that, they're there's this level of trust, like you've done them a favor, they will keep your secrets most of the time. So, I mean, it's a, it's a gamble, it's a risk to tell a reporter something juicy and hope that they keep it secret because, you know, reporters very much are in it for themselves in a lot of ways. Like, I don't mean that in a negative way, but their whole job that they want to be a good reporter, they want to break scoops, they want to have exclusives. So you're giving something pretty, you know, exciting to them. Um, you know, Vitalik and other people who've like sort of flubbed that um, and said something, you have to specify um, this is off the record before you say it. Even then, good luck. Um, you can say on background. A lot of times if you see an article, it says, you know, a person familiar with the matter said they will totally hide your identity. They can print that if you were a valid source and say someone familiar with the family, someone familiar with the matter, with the company, with the institution, whatever, said this so that they can still, well, it does sound sketchy. Um, they can still credit to someone without like basically snitching on the person who said it. At this point, the jubilation across Wall Street bets had turned to anger as some of the brokerages had restricted trading in certain names. By this point, other companies like AMC and BlackBerry were caught up in the frenzy, too. Even silver, the precious metal, was being talked about as a potential target. But many said this was just uninformed people spreading misinformation, maybe even to distract from GameStop. Either way, prices of silver jumped. Not just on the physical coin market, but the ETF, SLV, saw a 7% move on the news. It seems that everyone was looking for that next target. And now, Wall Street Bets had 8 million members, up from less than 2 million a month earlier. The overall sentiment on the board? Hold the line and do not sell. It even got a mention from hedge fund manager Dan Loeb of Third Point in his quarterly letter, saying, The recent short squeeze in certain securities is nothing new. 
As targeted securities have started to come back to Earth, wiping out fortunes on the way down as they did on the way up, we can see that this was a bubble no different than other manias over time, going back to the Dutch tulip bulb mania in the 17th century. What is different today, however, is the rapidity of the rise and collapse of bubbles, fueled by retail trading platforms and social media. And Bill Gross, the once famous Bond King, played the stock too. It wasn't long ago he was at the helm of PIMCO, which managed over $2 trillion at the time. This was before his departure to Janus. Now he's retired and spends most of his time playing golf. That week he was in Palm Springs. Gross saw an opportunity to have, as he put it, an advantage over Reddit with access to real-time options and volatility data on his Bloomberg terminal, which is an expensive computer usually only used by professional investors. But even he admitted, institutional investors are subject to the same emotions as retail. When things go up, he gets excited. And when things go down, he gets scared, he said. He got short around $100 to $150. But that was right before Elon Musk tweeted out the now infamous GameStonk tweet. That left him down as much as $15 million at one point. But he held on. And when the stock finally plunged, he walked away with about $10 million. As Wall Street bets would say, diamond hands. Here he is in an exclusive interview with the CityWire Selector podcast. I knew I had an advantage over uh, Reddit and the boys, um, but I, um, you know, I got in too early. Uh, I got short too early. I got I got short around 150 or 100, and uh, you know, and, and some uh, decent size, I guess. You know, it wasn't. Uh, one of the biggies in the hedge fund, but I, I was losing millions of dollars, and that's uh, that's not a good feeling when you go to bed. Uh, matter of fact, you wake up three or four times in the middle of the night and you check out GameStop on, on the black market. It wasn't just high-profile hedge fund managers and former bond kings, but pension funds were caught up in this too. Here's Marcus Frampton. He's the chief investment officer at Alaska Permanent Fund, talking about how they held GameStop through a fund and had to figure out what to do. We have um, well over a billion dollars out of our public equity uh, portfolio invested through um, a product called the RAFI uh, U.S. Large Cap um, uh, Quasi-Passive Index. And so what that is is a model put out by research affiliates that tends to track large U.S. stocks, uh, the Russell 1000, but weights them on fundamental factors, not market value. Um, They have in that model, as much as 10% of the stocks can be stocks outside the Russell 1000, but that fit well with their fundamental um, weightings. And so GameStop was in that category. Um, And so we have a couple external managers that passively run money against that research affiliates model and through that means we had over a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred thousand shares of GameStop stock. You know, like everyone else, I was following the story that week and and whenever there's a story impacting a stock, I pull up whether the fund owns it and and you know saw that we had a position. Um, I wasn't sure before I looked that we would have a position because it's it's a small cap. Um, most of our portfolios weighted towards larger cap stocks. We don't have a lot of Russell 2000 index funds, and that's the index 
GameStop was in, um, and you know most of the active managers out there weren't long. You know the 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 long positions were kind of the retail community. Um, so I did. It wasn't clear to me that we would own it. So I saw that we owned it. You know, probably middle of that week where it ran up, and then you know saw that it was in these uh, quasi passive Rafi models. So you know it was probably Wednesday, Thursday where we sort of diagnosed that we had it. Um, and then initially, because it's not, they weren't in actively traded accounts. We, the initial reaction was like, well, that's passive, so we're not going to intervene. Um, but it was such a ridiculous move in the price, and and the price was so disconnected from fundamentals that we started investigating whether we could actually do anything about it. And you know, so we contacted the managers that handle those passive portfolios for us, and learned that, that we actually could uh, intervene and, and ask them to exit the position. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the story is one of of just domination of passive investors in the market. And then, you know, what I'll call like closet indexers or, you know, closet passive. I mean, if you look at the top shareholder list of GameStop, you'll see, you know, passive names, you know, Vanguard, State Street, those types of investors. Um, but then, you know, if you, you'll see the Alaska permanent fund on the, you know, through our 13 S and, you know, we, you wouldn't know that we were running that through a quasi passive strategy, um, where it's a very high bar to go in and sell. And I think there are a lot of other examples of that in the GameStop shareholder list where maybe they're not explicitly passive, but there's not a human being responsible for a portfolio who would you know maybe sell when it hits twenty? It's got to you know run up to two hundred before you know uh, flags are going off that maybe we should intervene with this. The next day, not much had improved. GameStop shares were tumbling, erasing almost half their value in pre-market trading. Keep holding, users were saying, but brace for the possibility that things could get much worse. Still, Wall Street Bets was excited. Billionaire Mark Cuban of Shark Tank fame was set to answer members' questions in what is known as an AMA on Reddit. As the GameStop frenzy had unfolded, Cuban went on Twitter to defend individual investors. Now the information is so readily available, and and obviously it's supposed to all be public information that we all have access to, and and no one's supposed to have an information advantage. And so I think, you know, groups like um, Wall Street Bets aggregate that information in some cases, and and you can be a smart investor and still be a small retail investor and still, you know, become part of this unwired network that buys together. Despite the high-profile stories of Melvin Capital's losses, there were hedge funds making money during this whole thing. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, among them were Mudrick Capital Management LP, a $3 billion-plus New York fund that made about $50 million writing and selling call options on AMC and GameStop shares it owned. Another was Plus Take Management in Charlottesville, Virginia, which gained 20% in January from existing stakes in companies like BlackBerry. Hedge fund Senvest Management made over $700 million on GameStop, selling after Elon Musk's now infamous tweet. And other funds jumped into trading in the weekly call options for GameStop, and some profited. Analysts looking at the daily volume said that individual investors drove only part of the activity. 
it's not just little people on the long side here. There are huge players playing both sides of GameStop, said Thomas Paterfi, chairman of Interactive Brokers. Here's Jim Bianco again. So when you get to middle of January and Citron puts out their report on um, GameStop and why it's a short, a sell recommendation on it, the boards lit up. And they lit up and they said, it's overly short. They've, they're now at their maximum, most vulnerable position. They're, they're ready to go for it. It's time now for the squeeze. That was the trigger in my mind that was the squeeze. And there's this tremendous network effect that's out there on these social media boards. There's an institutional bias on Wall Street that, and even in the financial media, that the public is stupid money and that hedge funds are smart money. And we need to make sure that that narrative is always the case. So you're still seeing people that hedge funds won. There's 9,000 hedge funds. We found one or two hedge funds that made out during this period because they happened to be long AMC's bonds on a credit play from months ago. And they ran in, they were just lucky. They won the lottery and the AMC bonds went from 10 to 80. Or another hedge fund was paying attention to the short squeeze and jumped down to it. And then on the other side, Dave, Dave, Dave Portnoy said he lost some money in the trade and there's been some others. But if you look at them as a group of the thousands of hedge funds that short and the millions of networked retail investors, on balance, the retail investors won. Oh, but they all bought $400 or $483. From my work, it's pretty apparent to me, at least, the buyer above $400 was not a retail investor. That's not to say that there wasn't some. But the primary buyer was a short covering at a loss. It was the 53% loss that Melvin Capital took. They were buying it back up at those notably levels. Or D1 Capital, or, um, or 0.72, or any of the other big f- hedge funds that reported losses. They were the buyers at that big price. They couldn't take the pain anymore. So what I think the takeaway is, is that the game has changed. There's a big player left in in this game that didn't exist even a year ago. That's the networked retail investor. I would actually go a little bit further and say, why was it that GameStop was able to have 140% short? Why didn't the Goldman Sachs or the other hedge funds go, man, these guys are vulnerable. We could really stick it to them and make some money because they're in... I don't want to use the word collusion because that's a legal term, coordination with each other, or they look the other way, or they're part of our fraternity, and we don't do that to our fraternity. So the the big shorts in GameStop, you could have gone to them in late December and said, you're vulnerable with that big a short. And their answer was, yeah, but no one's going to do anything about it. Or there's no one of any size that can do anything about it. Now there is. And I would say that the behavior and the business practices of Wall Street have already changed because of what's happened with GameStop. The network effect is there's a couple of influencers that have been successful. They've been successful throughout the bulk of the post-pandemic period. First, Buffett sold his airlines and he wished them well. And that was led by Dave Portnoy, Davey Day Trader, that the airlines doubled in the next month. And they're still a double from where Buffett sold them uh, about a year ago as well, too. Then they ran into Tesla and it went up 6X. They ran into a lot of the non-profitable racy tech stocks. 
They were successful with those. They ran into ARC. They were successful with that. So the retail investor has been watching on Reddit these, these influencers win and win and win and win and win. And when they said it was time to run in the GameStop, they all did. They all ran in the GameStop and they created one of the biggest short squeezes we've ever seen. During the mania, Robinhood raised a new round of $3.4 billion to keep up with capital requirements from regulators. Soon, GameStop was trading just around $50 a share. That's when lawmakers started looking into things. Here's Elizabeth Warren. The whole point of having a stock market is so that people across this country, around the world, can invest in businesses, help create that capital accumulation so businesses have the money they need to grow and to prosper. Instead, what has happened is it's turned into a casino so that market manipulators come in and they drive markets up or down and make a profit on it. It's, it's called the gamification of the market. And AOC took to Twitch, garnering over 300,000 viewers on her live stream. Some of the questions that seem to be outstanding, right? Because if Citadel's yes. receiving these advanced, this advanced trade information from Robinhood, you know, I go on my phone, except not me, because I don't believe members of Congress should own individual stocks, so I don't have any. But, <laughs> but hypothetically, if I'm on Robinhood and I hit my order along with thousands of other people at that moment... Citadel is able to get that, potentially able to get that information milliseconds in advance. And in those milliseconds, their trading algorithms could adjust um, knowing that advanced execution information. Is that correct? And so I think here, you know, for folks that are watching at home, this is what raises a bunch of questions, not just from me, um, but also from, I think, this is why this is starting to attract the attention of regulators, members of Congress, et cetera, because there's a lot of policy questions that come up. Policy questions about shorting stock, policy questions about, you know, as you said, um, some of this advanced information. And so I think this is something that's important for us to kind of talk about, too, because this is ultimately so much of what has made this story, I think, really exciting to people at home is that at least for this one week, at least for these, you know, three, four days, it finally felt um, for so many people at home that, seeing, that are seeing this happen, people were really feeling like everyday people were finally able to collectively organize and get back at the folks who have historic, historically had all the marbles on Wall Street and force one hedge fund um, into an existential crisis. Um, and, but that, that is what has happened in you know, this short window of time, people really feeling this rush of organizing, et cetera. But it still raises, I think, this overall question of who, is, who are all of these rules and who is the concentration of power and money still benefiting and still advantage towards. Soon, regulators would start moving in. The SEC and CFTC said they would be reviewing whether trading practices are consistent with investor protection and fair and efficient markets. The news broke that the House of Representatives Financial Services Committee launched a congressional hearing. Game stopped? 
who wins and loses when short sellers, social media, and retail investors collide. On February 3rd, just before the hearings, Roaring Kitty said he would be backing off his regular Reddit updates of his GameStop holdings. Soon, he would be summoned to answer to Congress on a Zoom call. The hearing took place on a Thursday and was chaired by Maxine Waters. The lineup included Citadel's Ken Griffin, Melvin Capital's Gabe Plotkin, Reddit's Steve Huffman, Robinhood's Vlad Tenev, and Keith Gill, the trader known as Roaring Kitty. So, this hearing is entitled Game Stopped, who wins and loses when short sellers, social media, and retail investors collide. I now recognize myself for three minutes to give an opening statement. Good afternoon, everyone. This hearing will be the first in a series of hearings for the committee to examine the recent market volatility involving GameStop and other stocks. I want to know how each of the witnesses here today and the companies they represent contributed to the historic trading events in January. This recent market volatility has put a national spotlight on institutional practices by Wall Street firms and prompted discussion about the evolving role of technology and social media in our markets. These events have illuminated potential conflicts of interest and the predatory ways that certain funds operate, and they have demonstrated the enormous potential power of social media in our markets. They have also raised issues involving gamification of trading, potential harm to retail investors, and the business models of apps with retail investors as their users. All of this is why we have witnesses from many of the key players here to testify today. Now, before we begin uh, with your oral testimonies, I would like to swear in the witnesses. I will call each of your names individually to respond. Would you please raise your hands? Do you solemnly swear to affirm that the testimony you will give for this committee in the matters now under consideration will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Mr. Tanel? I do. Mr. Griffin? I do. Mr. Plotkin? Mr. Plotkin? I was muted. I apologize. I do. Thank you. Mr. Huffman? I do. Mr. Gill? I do. Ms. Scott? I do. Thank you very much. Let the record show that all of the witnesses answered in the affirmative. We will now begin with their oral testimonies. Mr. Tanev, you are recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Here's Tenev, Griffin, Plotkin, and Roaring Kitty. In late January, many brokerage firms saw a massive increase in trading activity in a handful of stocks. Prices were moving dramatically day to day, even hour to hour. One specific day, January 28th, proved to be a completely unprecedented event. The spike in trading activity and volatility meant that Robinhood Securities, our clearing broker, had to hold the line and post additional firm capital as collateral to support our clearinghouse deposit demands. To put it in perspective, on January 28th, our daily deposit requirement was 10 times more than on January 25th. 
As a result, Robinhood Securities, along with many other firms, imposed temporary trading restrictions on certain securities. We began allowing limited buys of these securities the following day, and we have since lifted the restrictions entirely. There are two points I want to make clear about these temporary restrictions. First, Robinhood Securities put the restrictions in place in an effort to meet increased regulatory deposit requirements, not to help hedge funds. We don't answer to hedge funds. We serve the millions of small investors who use our platform every day to invest. Second, Robinhood immediately secured additional funds. Altogether, through capital raising and other measures, we've increased our liquidity by more than $3 billion to cushion ourselves against increased collateral requirements and related market stress in the future. Despite the unprecedented market conditions in January, at the end of the day, what happened is unacceptable to us. To our customers, I'm sorry and I apologize. Please know that we are doing everything we can to make sure this won't happen again. And I want to highlight one more thing. The existing two-day period to settle trades exposes investors and the industry to unnecessary risk. There is no reason why the greatest financial system in the world cannot settle trades in real time. I believe we can and should act now to deploy our intellectual capital and our engineering resources to move to real-time settlement. Now, I first participated in the financial markets as a retail investor. In the late 1980s, while attending college, I traded stocks and options from my dorm room. My passion for investing led to my founding of Citadel in 1990. Today, Citadel is one of the world's leading alternative investment managers. Our capital partners include pension plans, colleges, hospitals, foundations, and research institutions. In 2002, my partners and I founded Citadel Securities. Today, Citadel Securities is one of the world's preeminent market makers. We have been a leader in using technology to transform our markets, particularly for retail investors. Citadel Securities invests hundreds of millions of dollars each year to serve the needs of our customers. In the last week of January, the importance of this investment was on full display. During the period of frenzied retail equities trading, Citadel Securities was able to provide continuous liquidity every minute of every trading day. When others were unable or unwilling to handle the heavy volumes, Citadel Securities was there. On Wednesday, January 27th, we executed 7.4 billion shares on behalf of retail investors. To put this into perspective, on that day, Citadel Securities executed more shares for retail investors than the entire average daily volume of the entire U.S. equities market in 2019. The magnitude of the orders routed to Citadel Securities reflects the confidence of the retail brokerage community in our firm's ability to deliver in all market conditions and underscores the critical importance of our resilient and stable systems. I could not be more proud of our team at Citadel Securities. My colleagues who were committed to ensuring that the interest of America's retail investors were served during this extraordinary period. I'm here testifying today far removed from my background. I grew up in a middle-class family in Portland, Maine. I went to a public high school. 
I studied hard and got into a good college. Upon graduation, I did not have a job. Today, I'm married with four children, and my time is spent with my family and on Melbourne Capital, which I founded six years ago. I named Melvin after my grandfather, who ran a convenience store. I wanted the firm to represent his values, integrity, hard work, taking care of customers and employees, and commitment to excellence. Melvin Capital manages a hedge fund. Investors such as academic institutions, medical research, and other charitable foundations, pension funds, retirees, and others invest with us. We have 36 employees and hundreds of investors, and I feel a personal duty to all of them. Melvin specializes in the consumer and technology sector, including companies like GameStop, AutoZone, and Expedia. Most of our investments are long. In other words, we buy stock in companies that create jobs, grow the economy, and develop new products for consumers. We do this after extensive fundamental research, sometimes literally for years. When our research convinces us that a company will grow relative to expectations, we make a long-term investment. When our research suggests a company will not live up to expectations and its stock price is overvalued, we might short a stock. Like with our long positions, our practice is to short a stock for the long term after extensive research. We also short stocks because when the markets go down, we have a duty to protect our investors' capital. There are laws governing shorting stock, and of course, we always follow them. In addition, it's very important to understand that absolutely none of Melvin's short positions are part of any effort to artificially depress or manipulate down with the price of a stock. Nothing about our short possession prevents a company from achieving its objectives. It is just Melvin's view about whether it will. Thank you, Chairwoman Waters, Ranking Member McHenry, members of the committee. I'm happy to discuss with the committee my purchases of GameStop shares and my discussions of their fair value on social media. It is true that my investment in that company multiplied in value many times. For that, I feel enormously fortunate. I also believe the current price of the shares demonstrates that I've been right about the company. A few things I am not. I am not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. I do not have clients, and I do not provide personalized investment advice for fees or commissions. I'm just an individual whose investment in GameStop and posts on social media were based upon my own research and analysis. I grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts. My family was not wealthy. My father was a truck driver and my mom a registered nurse. I was one of three kids and the first in my family to earn a four-year college degree when I graduated from Stonehill College in 2009. That was not a good time to be looking for a job. From 2010 to 2017, I worked at a few startup companies, but there were significant periods when I was unemployed. I took an interest in the stock market, and even though I had very little money, I used those times to educate myself and learn more about investing. In April 2019, after nearly two years unemployed, I accepted a marketing and financial education job at MassMutual. My wife Caroline and I were thrilled that I had an income and benefits. My job was to help develop financial education classes that advisors could present to prospective clients. I was not a stockbroker or a financial advisor. I did not talk to clients and I did not recommend stocks for them to buy. Before and after I joined MassMutual, I studied and followed stocks. One of those was GameStop. In early June of 2019, the price of GameStop stock declined below what I thought was its fair value. I invested in GameStop in 2019 and 2020 because, as I studied the company, 
I became more and more confident in my analysis. Ahead of his testimony, Keith Gill released a prepared statement. He downplayed his impact and said he didn't violate any laws. He simply used publicly available information to determine GameStop was undervalued. It was a view he had shared with just a tiny following on social media ahead of January's events. The idea that I used social media to promote GameStop stock to unwitting investors is preposterous, Gill said in the testimony. I was abundantly clear that my channel was for educational purposes only, and that my aggressive style of investing was unlikely to be suitable for most folks checking out the channel. In short, I like the stock, he said. The hyped-up event was actually kind of a dud. The questions got fired off with only a minute or two for a response. And sometimes those questions were in the form of yes or no answers. The investigation here was only just starting, and they promised more hearings to come. The key question in the hearing was regarding something called payment for order flow. So what exactly is that, and why does it matter? Next time on Short Squeeze, we'll hear from some experts on market structure. And the unthinkable happens again. Another squeeze. <laughs> 